When I was an early teenager, one of my favorite shows, that, or one of my favorite series of movies I watched, I actually caught on TV the other night. The other night I was kind of bored, and I was kind of thumbing through the channels of TV, and I caught the very middle part of the movie, and the movie is Karate Kid. Anybody remember watching Karate Kid? Yeah, it was a great movie, wasn't it? And so, and I'm going to talk about the new Karate Kid for some young bucks in the room. I'm talking about those that would have had uh, Mr. Um, uh, uh, help me out there, Elijah. Thank you, Mr. Miyagi. I went brain dead from Mr. Miyagi and Daniel's son. And the, the thing I love about it is there was a, there was a point in that, that first movie where Daniel's son has gotten so tired of sanding the floor, waxing the cars, painting the fence. He just had it with Mr. Miyagi. He's done with him. And then Mr., you remember the moment when Mr. Miyagi calls him in and they have that moment where he's like, show me, you know, sand the floor. And he's like, uh, and he's like, no. And he's teaching him exactly the moves he makes. And miraculously, within like 45 seconds, he's become a karate expert, right? And the thing about that is we remember in the middle of that clip when, uh, when Danielson's showing basically apathy for what he's taught him, he says, focus. And then in the second movie, when Danielson is in Okinawa with Mr. Miyagi, there's a moment where he's about to break the ice. There's like four panels of ice, and he's like, I, I, you know, the way to do it is a certain way, and, and then he's challenged on it, but four, four things of ice isn't enough, so they add, and there's six total, and, and Mr. Miyagi goes, you can do this, and he said, how do I do it, Mr. Miyagi? He said, what will you be doing while I do it? And Mr. Miyagi goes, I'm going to be praying, but here's what you need to do. You need to focus. And as I caught that clip a couple nights ago, a few nights ago, I just began to think about, is it, is it truthfully, maybe the thing is this, is that maintaining focus is something we need to do in so many different areas of life, isn't it? You know, I remember when I was in high school and I, I lifted weights and I, I loved lifting weights. I mean, I was the guy that when I played football my sophomore year, we had a universal machine. Do you remember what a universal machine is? They were terrible. There's like eight stations on them and my head football coach, it was, it was one of those moments every day it was the same, go in and do the circuit while he had eagles blasting on his eight-track player. I mean, it was a terrible thing. But then my junior year, we get a whole other set of coaches in and they introduced us to something I never thought about before and it was this major concept of free weights. And they would teach us how to lift these weights. But for these coaches, it wasn't just about technique. It was about focus. So when you're doing the squat rack and you put the bar on your neck, he would tell you to drive your elbows forward. But as you begin to squat down to do the, to do the lift, instead of looking down, you pick a focal point and you stay focused on it. And you, then you do the lift. Because if you put your eyes on the ground, now you're susceptible to injury. Same thing's true when you're doing bench press. You know, there are many people will bench press, and when they get stuck at one point, they'll look at their arm as if looking at their arm miraculously is going to help them get the arm up. And they like, no, no, you got to focus on a focal point and drive your energy there. So even weightlifting was about focus. I remember when Sonia was pregnant with James, our oldest, we dared to go to Lamaze class. Anybody done Lamaze class with your wife? Yeah, don't waste your time. We almost got kicked out of Lamas class. I don't know how that's possible. I'm sure it was mostly Sonia's fault, but as they began to talk about the birthing process, it was Sonia and I and our best friends who were both pregnant at the same time. They had their daughter like a month before James was born. And literally we were laughing so hard when the class was over. They said, look, if you're going to act like that, you can't come back to this anymore. So we almost got kicked out. But the only thing I remember Lamas class was them telling Sonia that when you're beginning that birthing process to find a focal point. What about if you have a relationship or in marriage? Isn't one of the things that we need to make those things work is putting focus and energy into them? My point is this, is that so much of life is about maintaining 
focus. And I really believe for us as believers, as exiles in this world, as exiles, as strangers, as aliens in this world, one thing that we're going to need to be the kind of exiles that God wants us to be, we need to be focused on what the Lord would have for us. And I really believe that is the heartbeat of what Peter is going to try to communicate to these believers in the passage that we're going to see in this moment. I mean, I believe Peter's trying to drive this notion to them that if you're going to be the exiles God wants you to be, you have to stay focused. Now, we talked about last week that when Peter kind of shifted the narrative a little bit and really shifted more from how to live as exiles to the fact that as exiles, you can expect to suffer. That as exiles, you are going to suffer for your faith. And how do we navigate that? And the first thing he talked about last week was if you're going to navigate a life of exiles, you have to be prepared to suffer. And what we're going to see uh, Peter advocate this, this, at this moment is that no, we need to be prepared to suffer, but we need to stay focused even in the face of suffering. Now, I want you to hear me. In this, I want you to take attention to this. It's so easy when suffering comes our way, whether it's suffering for the Lord or whether it's suffering just because of the, we live in a world where there is just suffering, whether it's just normal suffering or suffering because we're living for Christ. When suffering comes our way, it is so easy to paralyze us, isn't it? Maybe you've lost a loved one, and you've suffered that great tragedy, that great loss, that person you cared about. Maybe it was a mom, a dad, a spouse, a child, someone you greatly cared about, and you suffered that loss, and in that moment, you felt like you were paralyzed. I mean, I've met people before that when they suffer that kind of loss, they just don't want to get up in the morning. They are literally paralyzed and don't want to do anything. Suffering can do that to us. Suffering also can leave us in a place of disbelief. Maybe you've come from a broken relationship and you suffered through that, a divorce or a broken friendship, or you suffered through one of those things, and what you found yourself in was just this place of disbelief saying, did this really just, did this just happen or not? See, here's what we all know about suffering. And that suffering, it's an easy road for us when we suffer to lose heart, and listen to this, to lose focus. Isn't it? Amen? It's so easy. And if there's one thing Peter didn't want these early believers to do, is he did not want them to lose focus. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to begin to look at kind of what Peter talks about regarding this focus. Now, as we read these four verses, here's what I want us all to do. I want us to read them and hear them and understand them based on kind of two lenses. The first lens is, why are we to stay focused? And the second one is, what are we to focus on? So as we read these few verses here, I want you to be thinking about this. Why are we to stay focused, and what are we truly to focus on? Here we go, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. I'm going to ask you, would you stand once again with me in honor of reading God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, as we look at this passage, there's those two things I want us to think about. The first one is this. Why are we to stay focused? Why is it in the middle of suffering, in the middle of those moments, whether it's suffering for the Lord or just suffering, why in those moments is it important for us to stay focused? Well, Peter tells us in verse 7, the very first part, he says this, the end of all things is at hand. Now think about this. These early believers, he's encouraging them, and he's kind of driving down this idea of keeping your focus. Yeah, he's talked about being prepared, but now it's all about staying focused, staying focused on the mission, staying focused on the task, staying focused in your walk with Christ. And he tells them why they are to stay focused. Because the end of all things at hand. Here's what it means. The end is coming soon. Now I know for many of us, we read this and go, okay, wait a minute, Doug. This was written in, in almost 2,000 years ago, and the end has not come yet, right? Or we wouldn't be here, amen? We wouldn't be here. So why is he saying that? Well, listen, when you read the, the letters of Peter and you read the letters of Paul, when you read those things, here's what you have to understand. They wrote and they lived with an urgency that at any moment Jesus could come again. It directed how they lived, it directed their behavior, it directed their words, it shaped their actions. Everything about Peter and everything about Paul was driven by that at any moment, the Lord Jesus who is sent into heaven one day again is going to split that heaven wide open. And we don't know the day, and we don't know the hour, and we have to live like that moment's going to happen in any second. And that's the urgency with which Peter wanted these early believers to live. Why do you need to stay focused here? Because the end's coming soon. You don't know when it is, but it's coming. And it could happen at any moment. Now, for Peter, when he says this to the others, these early believers, I believe on one hand, this would have been energizing to them. Because if you're going through suffering, and you're going through difficulty, or you're filled with sorrow, this is good news for you, that what I'm going through is only what? Temporary. That what I'm going through, this suffering I'm going through, this sorrow, this depression, whatever I'm going through, it doesn't last forever. It would have been energizing because it would have helped these early believers who are struggling, persecuted, and suffering realize there is light at the end of the tunnel. So on one hand, this would have been an energizing, energizing statement for them. On the other hand, it would have been a motivating statement, motivating them to this. Our time is short. Do you believe that? Do you believe our time on this world is short? Well, I don't know, Doug. You know, my, my, my parents or my grandparents or my family members, when they were born back in the, you know, and they lived in the 30s and the 40s and maybe the 50s, man, they saw some of the same stuff happening, and they could have said the same thing back then. Well, I'm not asking you to compare our culture with their culture. All I'm asking you is this, that when you look at the world that we live in, isn't there something in you that thinks, how much longer can the Lord wait? The world has gotten so bad, so depraved, so sinful. How much longer is the Father going to hold off the Son from coming? That's how we're to live our lives. That at any moment, maybe before you finish your next breath, He's going to come again. And for these believers, that would have been energizing, but it also would have been motivating that our time is short, and we don't have time to play games. We don't have time to just be a fan of Jesus. We have to be a follower of Jesus who's getting after it, who's making a difference, who's living the life, who's not making excuses, but is elevating the name of Christ everywhere we go. And so for these early believers, man, this would have spoke volumes to them. And I pray that for all of us, this speaks volumes. 
that we should stay focused in our faith. We should stay focused with what the Lord has for us. Why? Because the end is near. The end of all things is coming soon. There's a day that the Lord Jesus is going to come and he's going to take his church home. There's going to be a day that people are going to stand before a holy God and give an account with what they did with Jesus. And in that moment, in that final judgment, it will be too late. Our time is short as exiles in this world. And it's time for us to be energized by that statement, realizing what we're going through won't last forever, but it's also time for us to be motivated by that statement and realize stop wasting our time. Get out of the bleachers and get onto the field of life and start living for Christ. So why are we to stay focused? Because the end can happen at any moment. And then he shifts to what we need to be focused on. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time in this moment, in what we need to be focused on. He lists four things. The first one's found in verse 7. Go back with me in verse 7. It says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here's what Peter says. Here's, and in the midst of you being urgent, in the midst of you being ready, in the midst of you staying focused, here's some things I want you to focus on. Here's the first thing. You ready? I want you to focus on the condition of your mind and the condition of your soul. I want you to focus on the condition of your mind and your soul. Now, when I talk about soul, I'm referring to the seat of our emotions. Do you remember when Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our strength, our mind, all of our soul? You remember when he said that? The word soul there translates the root or the seat of our emotions. So Peter's literally encouraging these early believers that what you need to focus on is the condition of your mind and the condition of your emotions. And so here's what he says. I want you to do two things. I want you to be self-controlled, and I want you to be sober-minded. Let's talk about what those mean. Self-controlled also could be translated, maybe in some of your translations, sound judgment or level-headed. But he says, I want you to be self-controlled. Now, here's what that means. That means that our, our, our actions and our decisions and our attitudes should not be driven by our emotions and our passions. Now, did you hear that? He's saying that I don't want your passions and your emotions to drive your decisions, to drive your behavior, to drive your actions. Now, we've all done that, though, haven't we? You know, I remember as a, as a kid, and, and mainly uh, it was toward my sister, not me as much, because she was way worse a kid than I was, and I know she's watching, so I'm sorry about that, Donna, but it's just true. Um, no, it's really not. I was bad, too. But I remember my dad would used to say this. He would say, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to knock you in the next week. Anybody ever heard that one? And I thought, Dad, that is so violent. And then I had teenagers, and I got it, right? See, we've all, if you're a parent, you've had that moment where you were so frustrated with your kids that you responded in your emotions, and as you backed up and looked at it, you realized you responded incorrectly, right? We've all had that moment. But we've also responded to things in passion. Maybe there's been a moment we've been in a heated discussion with our kids or with our spouse or with our boss, and there's been that moment where we're so heated that we said some things that we should have never said. Some things that exited our mouth we did not mean to exit our mouth. And we spoke out of passion. See, listen, when we speak and we are driven by our emotions and we are driven by our passions, we are not exhibiting self-control. We are out of control. See, here's what self-control is. Self-control is being focused on the right things. What are the right things? Godly priorities and righteous living. That's the right things. 
What does it mean to be self-controlled? It means that I am focused on godly priorities. What matters to God matters to me. What breaks the heart of God breaks my heart. What motivates and inspires God, that motivates and inspires me. So if I'm going to exhibit self-control, that means that I'm going to be focused on godly priorities, but I'm also going to be focused on righteous living. How can I live in a way that honor and is pleasing to the Lord? He says, I want you to focus on the condition of your mind and your soul. And part of that is by you being self-controlled. And then he says you need to be sober-minded. Now here's what that just basically means. It means to be spiritually aware and observant. That, are, that spiritually that we are clear-minded and see things for what they are. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 said something similar. In verse 2 he said, Therefore no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, Right? Here's what Paul meant, and here's what Peter was saying. He said, listen, don't let the philosophy of the world jade your thinking. Don't let the value system, the morality, or the philosophies that the world throw at you, don't let them jade you. Don't let them impact you. Don't let them influence you. Don't let them creep into your way of thinking. Don't let it creep into your morality and your value system. Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Be spiritually aware and observant. And do not let the philosophies of the world jade your way of thinking. So Peter tells them that they need to focus on the condition of their mind and their soul. The way they do that is by being self-controlled and sober-minded. But Peter said something very uniquely at the end of this verse. I hope you picked up on it. Look what he said. He said, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for what? For the sake of your prayers. Now, I found that interesting. I want you to be self-controlled, focus on the right things. I want you to be sober-minded, spiritually aware. And it hinges on, and it depends, and it determines, and impacts your prayer life. So what Peter's saying is that both of these are crucial and essential for you and I to have a quality prayer life. That if we're not sober-minded, if we're not self-controlled, that we aren't going to have the kind of prayer life that we should have. The only way to have the kind of prayer life that we need to have, the kind of quality prayer life that God desires for us, is if we are self-controlled and we are sober-minded. Now here's what I mean. When we truly are self-controlled, focused on godly things, when we truly are sober-minded, listen, we pray more effectively. We do. Because we're not praying and pursuing and focused on worldly pursuits, we're focused on godly priorities. We're focused on your righteous living. So when we are sober-minded and we truly are self-controlled, we pray more effectively. We also, listen, we also pray more intelligently because we're not driven by the philosophies of the world. Now we're driven by the divine purpose of God. We know what God's purpose is for us, what it is for the church, and how he wants to live in this world. So we pray more intelligently. But listen to this. We also, listen, we also, when we are sober-minded, and we're self-controlled, we also hear more clearly from the Lord. Do you believe that? Say amen. I'm going to tell you, it's when we're not sober-minded, when we are driven by our emotions and our passions, that we miss out on hearing the voice of God in our life. We miss out on him speaking to us through his word. We miss out him that those gentle whispers that we hear or those gentle nudges or the advice that our godly friends are trying to give us. We miss God's voice. But when we are sober-minded and we are truly self-controlled, we hear more clearly from the Lord. And so Peter says, listen, as in early believers, as exiles in this world, here's some things I want you to focus on first. I want you to focus on the condition of your mind and of your soul. 
And the second thing we're to focus on is found in verse 8. It says this, above all, underline that in your Bible, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now there's three kind of phrases there I want us to pull out. He says, first of all, above all. Here's what that means. That above everything, the chief priority of every believer is to love one another. That's what he said. Above all, love one another. That the chief priority, the chief objective of our lives as believers is to love one another. It's our priority over seeking knowledge of God's word. It's over our priority of, of, of giving or church attendance. The primary priority of every believer is to love one another. If we don't love, we are nothing. Paul says knowledge is puffed up, but it's love that what? Edifies. It's love that makes a difference. Warren Wearsby, a famous commentator, says it this way, that love is the badge of a believer in this world. Meaning this, what separates us from the rest of the world is how we love like God loves. That is one of the defining marks of a believer in a broken world is how we love. And Peter says, listen, above everything else, the priority of our lives as believers is to love one another. And he says we're to do it earnestly. That's a word we talked about in week one, but I want to kind of recap it. The word earnestly just means deeply. It's the idea of kind of painting a picture of the intensity with how we're to love one another. He says, not only do I want you to love one another with this agape love, I want you to love them deeply. I want your love for people to be intense. Why? Here's why. Because when we love above everything else, and we love people earnestly, that's why he says the next statement, that this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. Well, Doug, what does he mean? Well, let me tell you. When we love above everything else, and we love earnestly, deeply, passionately, we love people that way, that kind of love, listen, that kind of love, that kind of love is forgiving. Now, I know when we talk about forgiveness, for some of us, man, my emotions just kind of rise to the surface going, well, Doug, you don't know how bad somebody hurt me. You don't know what they did to me. Doug, what they did, I don't know we can come back from it. Listen, I've heard it all. I've experienced a lot. I get it. I get that when we talk about forgiving, we like to say the words, but true forgiveness is for many of us is something that we have not really experienced in some of our relationships. But I'm just telling us that when we get to the point where we above all love like Peter says to love, earnestly, intensely, and deeply, that kind of love is forgiving. So let me talk about what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness is simply canceling their debt. It's all it means to forgive. That someone has offended you, someone has brought offense against you, and you purpose, and you decide, and you choose to say, I cancel your debt. That's forgiveness. What does that mean? That means when I say I cancel your debt, that means I'm going to look at you as if you had never sinned against me. And I'm going to cancel your debt means that I'm going to never leverage this over you again. That's biblical forgiveness. Now, if we could all talk about this and raise our hands and vote and you could speak out, here's what you would say is that that's really difficult, isn't it? Because I want to tell people I forgive them but most of the time I want to hold a grudge against them. I want to tell people I forgive them, but when the moment's right and the opportunity comes, I may go back six months ago and grab that and leverage it for the present conversation. And usually it happens a lot in marriage, amen? 
You remember six months ago? Oh, there we go. Leveraging the past. Right? See, hear me, church. Biblical forgiveness is canceling their debt. It's looking them as if they had not sinned against you and is committing to never leverage it over them again. See, when we forgive like that, now we have finally forgiven like the Father has forgiven us. See, when we forgive like that, for the first time in our life, we begin to experience and to, and to, and to live out the kind of forgiveness that we've seen. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you know the forgiveness of God, does God leverage your sins against you a month from now from what you did six months ago? Does he leverage it against you? No. Jeremiah says, he told Israel, I will remember your wickedness, what? No more. That our sins are as far as the east and the west, to the west, which is unmeasurable. And so when we truly forgive this way, by canceling their debt, we are finally forgiving people the way that we too have been forgiven. But let me tell you what forgiveness is not. Please hear me. This is maybe more important than what forgiveness is. Here's what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting. How many of you were ever told as a kid, forgive and forget? Anybody? Anybody? Come on. Come on. Anybody? Okay. That's wrong. How many of you forgot? I still remember how my brother and my sister or my friends hurt me when I was, I mean, I still remember those stories. Forgiveness is not forgetting. The only one who has the ability, the supernatural ability to remember wickedness no more is the Father himself. He's the only one, not us. So forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. Forgiveness doesn't mean you're ignoring the offense. Some of you have experienced real pain. Some of you have experienced real hurt. And when you forgive that person and you cancel that debt, you're not saying, hey, look, I'm going to ignore that pain. I'm going to ignore the hurt. You still got to work through that. So it's not ignoring it. And forgiveness is not condoning their actions. When you forgive someone, most of the time people feel like this. When I truly forgive them, it's as if, Doug, I'm letting them off the hook. And you're not. You're not saying what they did was okay when you forgive them. You're just saying, I choose to forgive you. See, what Peter says is when we love earnestly, that love will lead us down a path of forgiveness because that love will cover a multitude of sins. Here's something I want you to write down. It's not on the screen, but something I want you to write down that I believe kind of encapsulates what I'm talking about. When we love earnestly, we will forgive properly. Let me say that again. When we love earnestly, deeply, intensely, we will forgive properly and truly cancel somebody's debt. He says, listen, I want you to focus on the condition of your mind and, and your soul. I also want you to focus on loving one another. And the third thing he says is found in verse 9. He says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So one thing that we're supposed to do is to focus on showing hospitality to one another. We are to focus on showing hospitality to one another. That just simply means this. To love others by showing kindness. That's what hospitality is. To, sh to love other people by showing them kindness. So what does that mean, Doug? Here's what it means. It means making people feel welcomed. It means making people feel like their needs are cared for and even meeting those needs. It's making people feel like they have a place they can come where they are loved and they are accepted. See, that's why it's so important for us as a church to be hospitable. 
I mean, that's why as a church, we focus so much energy on hospitality. That's why Lawrence and I have spent time and time and time again talking about tweaks and doing this and doing that. What can we do here? Why? Because we understand something, that hospitality matters. People may come to our church and go, the music was okay, the preaching was eh, but at the end of the day, I felt loved by those people, and I'm coming again. See, that's the language that people speak, language of belonging. And he says to this early church, if you want to make a difference, you have to focus on being hospitable to one another. And he says, listen to this, do it without grumbling. <laughs> Have you ever met somebody that's shown someone else kindness and they complained about it the whole time? You ever met somebody like that? Or they didn't just complain about it. They were like, you know, I showed this person kindness, but I wish I didn't have to do it. I mean, they're just kind of, they're just kind of angry at the fact they had to do it. See, when we show hospitality, that should be, true hospitality should come from an overflow of our love for other people, shouldn't it? True hospitality, truly showing people kindness, should come from an overflow of our love for others and out of the joy that we have for the Lord. That's where hospitality should come. And he says, listen, church, I want you to be hospitable. I want you to focus on showing other people hospitality because it matters. Now, when you think about this in context, Something I thought about a couple days ago was this, that in context, Peter's talking to these early Christians. They don't have buildings like we have. They didn't have church services like we hold church services. The two kind of primary ways that people in the first century were hospitable, one was by individual encounters. They would meet somebody. They would welcome them. They would show them that they cared about them, meet their needs, or give them a place to hang out where they could feel loved and accepted. But another way they did that was by utilizing their homes. Right? Acts chapter 2, they met in a home, right? And it said they sold everything they had to meet the needs of the people. They were hospitable. And as I was praying about that, the fact that the early believers would use their homes to show hospitality, it just dawned on me, what about this? What if us, what if us as believers decide to view our homes that we live in, rather than viewing them as shelters for our family, rather than viewing as castles that we rule over, what if we viewed our homes as a tool for ministry? What if we viewed our homes as a place to show hospitality? You said, Doug, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you two examples. One could be as simple as having a meal with somebody, inviting somebody to your house. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's somebody in our church that you don't know that well, and you invite them in your house just with one agenda, to get to know them. That's it. That's at a very entry level. We can all do that, can't we? But if you really want to be intense about it, and you really want to show hospitality, what about considering fostering? There's thousands and thousands and thousands of kids that supposedly nobody wants that have been taken from their home that are in foster care. What about that? Is, that, is, is fostering kids, is that showing hospitality? Absolutely. And my point is this. If there's an area that Doug struggles with, it's this one. I love hospitality. I love making people feel welcome. But to truly show hospitality takes an intention of the heart to do it and to look for those opportunities. And he's telling these early believers and telling us, that as a church, as individuals, as followers of Christ, we have to focus on showing hospitality to one another. Then let me give you the last thing he says. It's found in verse 10 and 11. He says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another and good, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be what? glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
The fourth thing that we're to focus on is stewarding the gift that God has given us. I'm talking personally right now. And what we learn from the passage is simply this, that everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, everyone, at the moment of salvation, you received at least one spiritual gift. God has gifted you. And you go, I didn't know I had a spiritual gift. Well, now you do. Every single one of us has been given a spiritual gift. Now, the question is, do you know what that gift is? Now, I, I hesitate. I don't want you to answer because I don't, I don't want any foolish answers because I remember many, many, many years ago, I was sitting in a, an ordination council and this one gentleman who was about to be a leader in the church, they said, what are your spiritual gifts? And they were going around the circle and the man literally said, I believe my spiritual gift is to love my wife. And I thought to myself, self, is his wife so unlovable that God had to supernaturally empower him to love his wife. And for some of us, listen, I'm, you know, and it was funny, you know, it was funny, but there's a part of me going, he was serious. See, so for some of us, you need to get your Bible and go to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and start reading about those things. You need to find out what your gift is. And what we also learn from the passages that God has given us a gift for a purpose. You know what the purpose is? To serve the body, to build up the church. And if you know what your gift is, are you using it to build up the body? Are you using it to build up the church? And if not, you need to find a place of ministry to do that. I was watching a video clip from, from several years ago. It was the Special Olympics. And it was all these Down Syndrome kids that were running like the 100-meter dash. And they all start running, and everybody's applauding. And this one young man with Down Syndrome falls. And you could hear the crowd just kind of sigh in that moment. And all the kids are running, stop see this other competitor who's fallen, and guess what they do? Do they keep running to the finish line? No. They all turn around, come back, and help this kid up, and they all finish the race together. And I thought, that's the church. That's the church. We've all been given a gift, and we got people all along the way in the race of life with us, and part of our gifts is to build the body up, to pick people up, and to move them along in their faith in Christ. So when we look at this passage, what we learn is why we're to stay focused. The end is coming. It is near. But we also learn what we are to focus on. And I think it's so important for us to ask ourselves this question tonight. To ask ourselves this question in this moment. Which one of these four areas are we struggling? Which one of these four areas are we wrestling with? And will we be honest and just confess that to the Lord? and make a commitment to make a change. Maybe you struggle with, with, with uh, the, focusing on the condition of your mind yourself. You look at your life, and your life is 100% driven by emotions and by your passions, and you have been jaded by the philosophy of the world. And maybe you just need to say, Lord, would you give me the strength to not be focused on those things, but give me the strength to focus on the right things, godly priorities, focus on righteous living. Help me clear my mind. Help me be sober-minded. Would you just ask God to help you with that? Maybe you struggle with loving one another. You say you love other people. When we talked about forgiveness, you just realized how much you've not demonstrated that love to somebody else. And maybe you need to ask God to help you with that. Or maybe you need to ask God to help you with showing hospitality. I said a while ago, this is an area I struggle. Not because I don't want to be hospitable, but to truly show hospitality takes an intentionality of the heart, an intentionality that oftentimes I don't give. I'm one of those guys that if it comes up, yeah, I'll do it, but I need to be intentional about it. And maybe you're like, man, you struggle with that. 
Would you say, Lord, would you help me see people the way you do? Would you give me a heart and a burden to love them and show them kindness? Or maybe you struggle with your spiritual gift. You don't know what it is. Would you say, Lord, would you help me discover it? And then give me the strength to use it to build up the body. See, for all of us that are believers, which one of these areas do you struggle with? And will you confess it and will you ask the Lord to give you strength through it? Now, I know so many times in the message we talk about things, we, action steps we need to take. And I know, because I've sit out there before, there's a point where you have to ask this question. Okay, what's at stake if I don't, Doug? What if I look at my life and go, I think I'm good. What if I look at my life and go, well, to change that, it's going to take too much work, so I'm just going to stay put. Well, what's at stake, Doug, if I do absolutely nothing? Well, here's what's at stake. Your spiritual growth is at stake. If we refuse to listen to the Word of God and to do what God's Word tells us, we will stifle our spiritual growth. Your relationship growth is at stake. If we don't love people the way that we're called to love people, we will fracture, we will destroy, and we will wreck and ruin every relationship that we have if we can't learn the art of forgiveness. And maybe our heart to serve the Lord is at stake too. If we truly don't acknowledge that we have a gift and God wants to use us, we can't use any excuse like Moses, can't use the excuses of Jeremiah that God has gifted us and he wants to use us. If we just kind of push that to the side, it's going to destroy the fact that we don't have a heart to serve. And so what's at stake if you do nothing? A lot. So for believers, will we make a decision? Will we find out where do we struggle? Where are the deficits in my life in these four areas? And God, would you give me the strength to work on them? And then for those that maybe that are, that are part of the service in this moment, you're like, man, I don't have a relationship with Christ. Well, let me just offer this one word of encouragement. And it's the encouragement that Peter gave out of the gate. And it's this. For the end of all things is at hand. There's going to come a moment where Jesus is going to come and everything is going to be over. And in that moment, you're going to stand before a holy God and give an account of what you did with Jesus. And if you thought you could wait till later to make the decision, you are mistaken. And as we've gone through this book, every, week after week after week after week, we've talked about the suffering, the sacrifice, and the love of Christ. And maybe in this moment, for the first time, you need to surrender your life to Christ by admitting you're a sinner, by believing who Jesus is, and confessing your faith in him. So would you make whatever decision the Lord has led you to make? Whether you're a believer, a non-believer, would you be faithful to respond? I'm going to ask you right now, everybody stand with me if you would. Everybody stand and let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I love you. And I thank you for this moment. And I, got, I know for me personally, as I have been navigating this passage for weeks now and, and wrestling with it, I, I see some deficits in my life. I do. And God, I, I feel the, the challenge that you've put before us today. That as believers, we need to look and go, where are we deficit? Where are we struggling? And then make a difference. Decide to make a commitment to change those things. To ask your Holy Spirit to give us the strength to make a difference in those areas. Lord, if we're going to be the exiles you want us to be, we have got to start living with urgency. And we've got to start focusing on the right things. Peter tells us what we need to focus on, Lord. And in this moment, may we shift our attention to those things. May we shift our attention to the condition of our mind and our soul. May we shift our condition, or may we shift that, that our mindset and our thoughts and our attention to our love for one another. May we shift our mindset, Lord, to what it means to show hospitality, 
And may we shift our mindset, Lord, to what it means to truly steward the gift that you've given us. And I pray as believers, you would convict us and that we would, that we would exit this time together changed by your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray for that person that doesn't know you. I pray that they would be reminded in this very moment that the end is near. We don't know when that's going to happen. But when they stand before you, how will they defend their life? What will they say they did with Jesus? And Lord, I pray in this moment that somebody would surrender life to him. God, help us tonight. We need you. Help us to be faithful to respond as you lead us. For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen and amen.